HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Levo. Simple, potent, at-home herbal infusions at the push of a button. Learn more at levooil.com and feed your enthusiasm. That's L-E-V-O-O-I-L dot com. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking about comfort food as we explore its history, meaning, and different interpretations from around the world. Donburi is just a simple, casual dish, but it's packed with the history. Somebody might have their comfort food be something that they remember eating at their friend's house, but they would never have at their own home. Consuming foods that were eaten then can bring back some of those feelings from, from those times. It's about creating these little breaks and moments during the day where you kind of feel present. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome food writer and Apple expert, Amy Traverso. In this episode, we'll talk to Amy about how the New England food scene is coping with COVID, her favorite apple dishes for the holidays, and we'll hear Amy's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We send strength to everyone navigating the pandemic and our thanks to all the essential workers keeping us going. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia's association with Boston and New England is a strong one. So strong, many people assume Julia was a Boston Brahmin, misled by her high warble tones. She was properly a Californian, raised in Pasadena, but New England was certainly very much a part of who she was. She graduated from Smith College in Massachusetts, her attendance influenced by her mother's 
roots in Western Mass. Like Julia, her husband Paul was also not a native New Englander, but he grew up in Boston, and his twin brother Charlie built a house on the Maine coast, which became a central child family gathering spot that Julia frequently enjoyed visiting. Thus, New England remains a place of great significance in the making of Julia Child. And as we speak, they are shooting a pilot for a new television series, which focuses on when Julia's career took off, all thanks to an appearance on Boston's public television superstation, WGBH, recently rebranded as just GBH. This association continues as we at the Foundation have been collaborating with GBH on their You and Julia digital series, through which we were introduced to another member of the GBH family with similar deep ties to New England, Amy Traverso. Also a Smith College alumna, Amy is a senior food editor at Yankee Magazine and co-hosts Weekends with Yankee, produced by GBH for National Public Television. She's also the food and dining contributor to GBH Radio's Under the Radar. Having previously been a food editor at Boston Magazine and Sunset Magazine, Amy wrote the Apple Lovers Cookbook published in 2011, which was a finalist for IACP's Julia Child First Book Award and won its Best American Cookbook Award. She also frequently appears on other television programs, ranging from the Hallmark Channel to Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. Raised in Northern Connecticut, she lives with her family in Boston. Amy joins us today to talk about the New England food scene during quite a crazy year and to share her Apple expertise. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about New England food, and in the second half, we'll talk more about apples. So I'm kind of, these questions are a little bit two-parters because I'd like to talk about the New England food scene sort of pre-COVID because I think everything is sort of altered, but I'd love to, I'd love to be caught up on, and I hope our listeners would too, on sort of what's been the evolution before COVID hit. And if you want to chime in of how that's been affected, but, but I'm kind of looking at like, not just the COVID thing, like what's it been overall. And so I was curious how the GBH's weekends with Yankees actually kind of approached covering it or what your approach has been about, you know, kind of bringing your viewers into what's going on in New England. Yeah. I mean, the, our approach to covering it has been interesting because I came, I came from a very much a print background and learning to tell stories in a visual medium has been a really exciting learning curve for me. Um, and I think the thing that drives our, storytelling uh, in, week, in Weekends with Yankee is um, something, we're looking for stories that convey a joy and a love of food and a celebration of food in New England with a story to tell. So um, we try to go to the people who are shaping the landscape, whether they're makers or chefs, um, uh, you know, cheesemakers, winemakers, all those fo- amazing folks, but also, you know, the chefs. So um, one story that I think kind of typifies what what we're trying to achieve um, is we did a piece about a chef in Portsmouth, New Hampshire named David Vargas. He's an incredibly talented uh, chef who grew up in Southern California in a Mexican-American family. His family had a taqueria um, and he then went on. He had culinary ambitions beyond uh, California and he came east and cooked and you know, top kitchens in New York. He cooked up in wine country in California, you know, mastered French cooking, all the technique, um, and then ended up deciding life uh, as a chef in, you know, 
in wine country wasn't really sustainable with children. So he and his wife moved back to New England, where she's from, and he kind of got back in touch with his his roots. He opened a place called Vita Cantina, which is an amazing a Mexican restaurant. It's in an old, if anybody is familiar with the Friendly's chain, um, they have these iconic mm. uh, buildings yeah, yeah. all over New England. And so it's in a former Friendly's and it's you can see the bones. It's a really awesome, they did a fabulous redesign. Um, and you know, he well, was making. I was going to say, sorry for non-New Englanders or East Coasters, like Friendly's. Could could you call it like it's sort of like Denny's with ice cream? Yes, but, yes, right. yes, exactly. Doesn't do it justice, but <laughs> Tim Hortons to... sort of with ice cream, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so he um, he he was making very good Mexican food, but he was buying his tortillas, and he he just felt like we've got to make our own tortillas if we're going to be cooking at the level that I want to cook. So they bought masa and they started making tortillas. And they were much better, but still wasn't good enough for David. And meanwhile, he's very, very connected to the local farming scene. And so he met a a farmer at Tuckaway Farm in a nearby town who was experimenting with growing the kind of field corn that um, you would use to make uh, masa. And so they embarked on this project of, of choosing varieties that David liked for his to make his own um his own masa and making his own tortillas. And so now he has a business called Vita Tortilla that feeds his restaurant, but also you can buy these really delicious tortillas made with the, you know, corn grown by this old New England family a couple towns away. And to kind of be able to go to the field to see the corn and then go back to the tortilleria and see the tortillas being made. And I just love that whole thing. And then one other favorite story that has a Julia connection uh, loosely is, is we did course we're a new england food story we had to do a food show we had to do a clam bake um but we went up to bar harbor um uh right near where the child family house was and we uh met with the chefs from a fabulous portland restaurant called eventide and we cooked uh we cooked the you know clams and lobsters and uh potatoes and uh red snapper hot dogs right there on the beach um and i know that it was at that home, the family home where Julia first learned to make beef bourguignon from her sister. She really didn't know how to cook much at that time. She was a newlywed, as as you know. And um, and so I loved kind of being there on the beach and thinking that I was very close to the place where Julia Child started to cook. I have not heard that version of the story. I will I will look into it. That's for Yeah. Um, yeah, no, and still a child family home. Julia's just not able to be there anymore. Right. Wow. Um, so you answered my question because I was going to say, like, is there more to New England than just lobster, clam chowder, and maple syrup? But you you beat me to the punch with that story about what's it called? Vita Cafe or Vita? Vita it's Vita Cantina and Vita Tortilla. Yeah. And what is fascinating to me about that story is that my first instinct was, oh, well, Mexican food is not, you know, associated with New England or is it is that out of place? But of course, if you keep thinking that through as you describe the corn, growing corn, particularly the varieties of corn that make good masa, is actually quite Native American and tied to that indigenous connection. Absolutely. You know, kind of stitches that back together in a really, um, that, yeah, that's wonderful. I also think that the story of New England food, um, I think the challenge now and the opportunity right now is to really broaden 
the narrative of what New England food is, because unfortunately, New England food, New, the New England food identity suffers from a lot of contrived mythology um, that came around. And there's a great book called The Truth About Baked Beans um, that just came out in, I believe it was August. It's published by New York University Press um, that goes mm. into this story. But there's a lot of food traditions that really were inventions of sort of the Victorian period, late 1800s, early 1900s, like the classic clam bake. Um, you know, this, there were stories kind of that they go back farther, uh, you know, and invented narratives about, oh, this is, you know, our, our pilgrim forefathers learned this from the native people. A lot of that is was invented um, in response to a perceived uh, loss of uh, culture as with the arrival of a lot of immigrants. Mm. Um, and it was also, you know, a response to the fact that the U.S. had reached a hundred year birthday. And so there was a certain amount of just, um, you know, patriotism and wanting to kind of revisit food traditions. So I'm really trying to um, tell the truth about New England food um, and, and, you know, the incredible influence of, say, Portuguese fishermen, uh, you know, had on what New England food is mm. when when groups of people have been eating and cooking in New England for 200 years. That's New England food. <laughs> so but meanwhile, we also know that our viewers and our readers love icons. They love lobster. They love whoopie pies. They love all those things. And so we try to give them those things in a in a new way. So just like with David Vargas. And the tortillas, you know, that corn, when the pilgrims first came, they were eating a lot of corn because they couldn't grow wheat very well. It took them a while to figure out how to grow wheat. And so um, they they were adapting their bread recipes with corn and making these flatbread corn things that were very much like tortillas. Um, so I love all that. I love the way it all connects. No, and we shouldn't shortchange because I was like my mouth is watering thinking about having the best lobster rolls that on in Martha's Vineyard, and of course that yes. shouldn't be downplayed. But then also, not Absolutely. all of New England is coastal, so they couldn't possibly have been doing lobster and clam bakes always. Yes, and so we yeah we always do all the chowder and all the you know all the classics, but we we try to also tell you know the incredibly exciting broad and diverse story of New England food right now. And one of one thread of that story, I would say, is Boston, uh, you know, I think we a lot of food trends do start on the West Coast and having lived there, I, I certainly saw that. Um, but New England was such a national leader in terms of elevating its, um, you know, women chefs to the national level, you know, to, to being uh, celebrities. Um, and I think that had a lot to do with Julia. I think Julia kind of set a tone of taking women chefs seriously. I think she inspired a, a generation of like Jody Adams and Barbara Lynch, mm. you know, that uh, and Lydia Shire to step in and take that leadership role and be the face of the kitchen. Um, and New England had a concentration of women chefs uh, and sort of celebrity chefs. I think that actually, you know, predated some other cities. Um, and I do think we can we can thank Julia for that. Yeah, no, and that makes me think about Joyce Chen and her Chinese restaurants and that actually that was something I didn't know much about. And I'm hoping if the Julia Child television series goes ahead, the time period being covered is also when Joyce Chen was coming into her, her own. And, you know, yes, I don't think she and Julia were best friends, but they certainly knew each other. And certainly I feel like not enough is known sort of by the average person about Joyce Chen's role in, in, you know, and I think this moment in time too, we had, um, 
Grace Young on the podcast talking about how Chinese restaurants are, you know, as American as apple pie. And it, when, which is not top of mind for people, but when you break it down, that's the way it works out. So, yes. So, I wanted to also ask you then, and thinking about what you were saying, because I lived in Rhode Island at one point too, and I know how to pronounce New Bedford properly. But it has a very large and longstanding Portuguese. immigrant community, both both new and, and historic. And although I don't really remember anyone raving about any Portuguese restaurants in, in, in and around Rhode Island or that part of Massachusetts, is that something that is is blossoming or is there sort of another direction that sort of new foods or, or new cuisines or rediscovered cuisines are going in New England? I do think Portuguese sort of, um, there have been some very good upscale Portuguese restaurants, but I think that cuisine is definitely ripe for a little more, um, a little more PR, a little more um, front and centerness. <laughs> I think, you know, we've, we've all been in love with uh, rediscovering or um, discovering or, uh, I don't know, putting forth Middle Eastern flavors, um, mm. which has been wonderful. But I, I think, you know, a lot of food cover writing and food coverage, food media is about kind of finding exciting new things. And I think um, while Portuguese food is certainly not new, I think there are enough people who aren't yet familiar. There is a great market in Fall River, Massachusetts called Portugalia Marketplace. And it's kind of a, a bit of an Italy for Portuguese food. Mm. Um, and so that's that's a pretty exciting, um, you know, really unique shopping experience um, that I highly recommend people check out if they're in Massachusetts. Um, and, you know, well, just and a Fall great... River being almost suburban Providence, too. So, you yes, have, you, it's closer to Rhode Island, actually. Than... Yeah, yeah, it is very close to Rhode Island and New Bedford and those, you know, that fishing community on the south coast. Um, just it's it's beautiful. It's really special. So I'd love to see more of that because that's that is woven into our history. I mean, it was Portuguese fishermen who really discovered North America, um, you know, <laughs> long before Columbus. So um, it's not on record, but I will, I think I think lots of people came. I shouldn't say they discovered, but they they were coming before Columbus. Yeah, no, they played an integral role in in that whole process. It was. Um, so I wanted to ask you about COVID and, and kind of how that's impacted New England. And um, I was hoping maybe, I mean, please tell us, you know, sort of your overall take on it. But I was also hoping that you might have some interesting stories of, of innovation or adaptation that you've seen in different communities, or maybe you haven't been able to see personally, but have heard about um, in terms of how food producers and or restaurateurs have kind of coped. Yes. Um you know, it's funny. I find I always find when when I, it's always hard to get past the first level of kind of grief and uh, overwhelm of thinking, you know, of the struggle because obviously we are not blessed with a year-round temperate climate here, and mm. a lot of chefs are really struggling to figure out how they're going to get through the winter. Um, some restaurants are closing. Um, some chefs are saying, you know, they're running out of money. They don't know what they're going to do. So there's a lot of bad news and it, it can be very easy to just stop there and cry. But yeah. um, <laughs> chefs are also, you know, as we all know, some of the most innovative people, uh, business people in the world, and they constantly have to adapt with limited resources. 
and even before COVID. And COVID has only brought that out more. So, um, you know, some examples. I, I'm really intrigued by this idea of restaurants as community marketplaces. Um, mm. And not every restaurant is in a position to do this pivot, but um, some restaurants that I love, um, including Fox and the Knife uh, here in Boston, a restaurant called Alcove here in Boston, um, Nina June up in uh, Rockport, Maine, um, uh, you know, and Sarah Jenkins is the chef there, are are doing, you know, really beautiful uh, foods to go, whether it's prepared meals or whether it's um, a marketplace where you can buy homemade pasta and beautiful sauces and ingredients that you can't, you know, typically source at a supermarket. Um, and you can have that restaurant experience at home. Um, and they're getting by, they're doing it, you know, and then um, Brian Poe is a chef in Boston who's well loved. He's he's had a bunch of just very l- beloved restaurants in Back Bay neighborhood. Um, you know, all of his places are closed right now and some of them um, permanently and some of them hopefully will come back. But he opened, he he lives up on the North Shore and he, uh, which is north of Boston, <laughs> and he started a business called Crane River Cheese Club, um, which is, uh, he can, he basically said, look, I have all these sources, I can access any ingredient you want, I can access the best cheeses and meats and vegetables. So he, he started delivering uh, ingredients during the real lockdown phase um, to people who live in, in his area, his neck of the woods. Um, you know, whether it was meat or flour or cheeses. Um, and now he it's really evolving into a full business with meal kits and personalized shopping and, you know, custom and gourmet foods and a cheese club. I mean, so they're they're figuring it out. They have skills. They they can feed us and we need to eat. So we just have to keep figuring out where to meet in the middle. And meanwhile, you know, we also have to just just choose, adopt a few neighborhood restaurants and just support the heck out of them because they make living in your neighborhood great and they need us right now. So, um, so that I'm see, I'm seeing great innovation. Also a lot of giving back, even though, you know, they are not coming from a place of bounty right now, but, you know, restaurants like Mita in uh, Boston, Douglas Williams is the chef, you know, they're donating PPE to boys and girls clubs in Boston and the PPE is made by black owned businesses. So they're supporting their community in so many directions. Um, Things like that are super inspiring. Those are some great examples and I appreciate you uh, bringing them forth to us. I I think that that main thing of as much as it's really painful to watch restaurants struggle and some close I think you're so right. And that was what Julia admired about chefs is they're the most innovative people on the planet. Yes. And that yeah. I think a lot will rise, but sadly we'll be rising from some ashes and we just yeah. have to, as you say, lend the most support we can. Yeah. The other thing I'm looking for, and um, I'm not sure if you're seeing this where you are, but um, I think people are looking, a lot of restaurants are, are looking to Switzerland right now because Switzerland has figured out interesting ways of feeding people in, in the cold outside. <laughs> mm. And so um, like this restaurant Alcove in Boston, they, they've, they've bought four fire pits and they're going to be doing fondue menus and s'mores and surf and turf around the fire pit. Um, so I'm looking for that too, um, particularly any restaurant that's fortunate enough to have outdoor space 
creating a kind of cozy outdoor dining experience. Yeah, I know. I think it's that temperate climate, though. Like my brother lives in Chicago, and I was in Chicago two Januarys ago, something like that. And it is, re- you know, there are certain climates where just there's no amount of space heaters or kind yes. of where in a Without blizzard. wind. Can, yeah. In more <laughs> temperate climates in Europe, it's a little more more doable and maybe even in coastal um, uh, New England. But Boston can get pretty frigid. Very right? cold. Yeah. N- yeah. We, I mean, <laughs> maybe we don't know like what's going to happen. Maybe more like the ice in Scandinavia or something. <laughs> <laughs> maybe with like wind blocker, you know, some sort of walls, like protective walls, open sky, and enough of a fire going. I don't know. I mean, we're going to, it's everybody's learning as they go right now. But um, I think, you know, on the one hand, I'm, I'm really nervous about the winter and I'm very jealous of everyone in California. And at, at the same time, there's a part of me that is, you know, that knows that there will be some amazing uh, innovation and creativity coming out. So we'll see what happens. I know. We'll look forward to your coverage of that. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back to dive deep into all things Apple with Apple expert and food writer Amy Traverso. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Levo, the world's most intelligent at-home infuser. It's super easy to use to make infusions for cooking, candies, cosmetics, and herbal medicines. When the box showed up, I was excited to try it out as I've heard good things about the machine. It looks like a space-age coffee maker on the counter, and having it out makes me want to infuse everything. I've got plans for the hot peppers on my counter and the sage I picked from the garden before the first freeze last week, along with some other choice herbs and spices. I think everyone on my list is going to get infused oils this year. So far, I've used it for cannabis, basil, and orange peel infused oils and butter. The machine even has dry and activate functions for the highest potency and stability in your infusions, and you can connect through Wi-Fi to track your progress and record your recipes and share with the Levo community. Learn more at levooil.com. That's L-E-V-O-O-I-L dot com. Welcome back. We're talking to Amy Traverso, co-host of GBH's regional travelogue, Weekends with Yankee, and author of the Apple Lover's Cookbook. So, Amy, I feel like our knowledge of apples has really been reduced to this tiny list that doesn't do apples justice. So take us through, I, I know there might not be an exact number, but to give us a sense of how many apple varieties are there, and then also how did we arrive at this domination by such a small range? Yeah, okay. I love this question because there's so many fun answers. Um, there isn't one, but they're all good. <laughs> okay. So the first answer is infinity because every <laughs> every seed in every apple, and most apples have five seeds, is a new variety that hasn't been discovered. That is just such a moment of wonder. Every time, I mean, I, I've been- No, I read that in your book. It blows yes. your mind. You're like, what? It blows your mind. Like if you planted it, you would have an entirely new apple. And that's because apples are heterozygous like humans. And just like, you know, my child is a mix of genes of me and my husband. Um, so so apples, each apple seed is a unique uh mix of the genes from the parent tree and then the pollen that pollen that fertilizes the tree. So um, so there's infinite apple varieties. But in terms of named um, known apple varieties, the best estimates, no one's done a census, but the best estimates is maybe somewhere between seven and 10,000 in the world. And in the U.S., maybe 5,000, maybe more. I mean, the the exciting thing is there has been this turn toward uh, 
diversity and heirlooms and rediscovering fruits and going into the woods and finding wild trees and naming them and and um, grafting those apples onto new rootstocks. So it's expanding. It's which it's a good time for apples. Um, and meanwhile, you know, with the success of of a cultivars like Honeycrisp, which have done so well and made a lot of money for the University of Minnesota, which bred it, um, there is a the breeding world has come has been kind of uh, you know really sparked and um, and sped up uh, in terms of its ability to bring new varieties to market. So there's more new apples coming um, from breeders and there's more old apples and wild apples being discovered or rediscovered. So that is definitely a growing number, but there was this period. So um, when the first Europeans, another fact that blows my mind and, and brought me a lot of joy when I first started researching apples is that when the first Europeans landed here, there were no sweet apples growing. Um, there were native crab apples, some of which were more edible than others. Mm. Um, but there were no sweet apples that we'd recognize today and they all had to be brought in. Um, and in fact, they were brought from England, but they got to England by way of China um, or the the mountains between China and Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. Um, and, uh, or Kyrgyzstan, sorry, <laughs> the mountains between China, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, they, um, you know, they they are not native here. But so if you figure in the year 1600, there were no apple varieties. In the year 1900, the USDA did a survey of all known apples, um, and they eliminated apples that had, you know, multiple names. They 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 narrowed that down to just one name for that apple variety. They came up with 14,000 apple varieties. So we went from zero to 14,000 in a few hundred years. But then as uh, as people began to settle in the West and farm in the West, they uh, realized that with irrigation from the rivers and dry climates that didn't uh support a lot of um, pests and a lot of diseases, they could raise apple, really great, very sweet, very juicy, very big apples um, out in, you know, Oregon and Washington, Northern California. And so um, they began, and then the railroads are invented. And so now you can ship the apples uh, mm. to the East Coast. So as the West began to dominate the industrial scale apple industry, uh, apple growing um, business, they, um, like many large businesses, just began to consolidate. You know, it's more efficient to grow five apple varieties than 30. Um, and so they began to focus on apples that were, um, you know, reliably productive, that could withstand ship the, you know, perils and um, rigors of shipping, that uh, look pretty, that are nice and sweet. And so it everything contracted over a period of a few decades where we went to having, you know, maybe you had local apples that you could get at a local farm, but in terms of supermarket, you're down to three or four or five. Um, and, you know, which actually is better than many fruits, because if you go to a supermarket even today, you might find two kinds of lemons if you're lucky. But mm. generally, lemons are just lemons and oranges are, you know, maybe maybe you have a choice. Grapes are just grapes. But apples, at least, you know, you have a few a few options and that number is growing because there's more and more apples that are uh, they're, they're taking up a bigger share of the produce department. as You may have noticed. 
Well, so I wanted to ask you then the technical side, because I'm still blown away by this whole, like, you can't take apple seeds and make the same apple tree. Yes. So how, what is the, but then you've, you've just described how they've cultivated these and standardized very much certain varieties of apples. So how are they, they're not doing that with the seeds then, they're grafting or something to. Right, exactly. Yes. So the apples, uh, apples that we buy in the supermarket are cloned rather than, you know, bread. Um, And so you basically take a cutting of an apple variety that you like, and there are various techniques you can use, but you basically make a small cut in your rootstock, which is the tree that you want to grow the fruit on. Um, And you've chosen your rootstock because it's um, hardy and it's good. You know, it's, it's been, um, it's been developed to grow well in your climate and resist diseases and all those things. So you choose a good rootstock and then you take a cutting from the tree that you want to keep propagating. And you basically make a little notch in the bark of the rootstock tree and you, um, you match up the inner, uh, tissues of the apple wood so that they will, uh, fuse with each other and you seal that and, uh, protect it from any kind of disease getting in there and you wait and you make sure that the graft takes. Um, and then you will, you know, you can graft multiple varieties onto a single tree. There was, there's a farm out my way in, uh, well, it's west of me, but it's in Phillipston, Massachusetts, called Red Apple Farm. They at one time had a tree that had something like 50 apple varieties growing on it. And it was such a thing of beauty. Um, but it got very old and it eventually was was knocked over in a storm, sadly. But um, there are other examples of the multi uh, cultivar trees around around the world. I feel like you, you, you've you blown my mind again, because <laughs> that means that apples, which are healthy for you, that no one would debate are cloned and of course yes. cloning is what is freaking health people and activists all over the place about you know we can't eat something that's cloned it'll be bad for you when right, right. apples are cloned they and, are cloned and yeah yeah no and i was re- i was interviewing um uh, Chase Purdy, who wrote this book about fake meat and the the race to make manufactured eat meat, and he has this quote in it from one of the scientists about. So he's saying, so basically, the meat you're making is cloned, and he's like, yeah, but we don't like to say that because people don't like that idea. They don't like that word. Yeah. Well, here's the poetry of cloning. Um, the there's a the oldest American apple that we still grow that we know is Roxbury Russet, which dates to about 1630 and grew first in Boston. Um, And I have a few Roxbury Russets in my refrigerator downstairs in a paper bag, which is the best way to store them um, in the produce drawer. And those those Roxbury Russets are literally, the, the branches on which they grew were cuttings of cuttings of cuttings of cuttings of cuttings of cuttings of that first Roxbury Russet tree. Everything is directly connected back. Um, and that to me is so beautiful and such, I feel such connection to history when I, when I engage with apples and a lot of food does this. And it's one of the things I love about food is it's sort of this excuse to continue your liberal arts education, you know, into adulthood. Um, and here is this combination of kind of science and history and culture um, I just love that my apple is directly connected to this one tree that somebody discovered in a field in Roxbury, Massachusetts in the 1630s and decided, oh, this is a good one. I'm going to keep growing this. 
And presumably from what we just learned or you just taught us, that tree was most likely an accidental growth of a seed that got pollinated by some random thing. Yeah, yeah, some random um, nearby tree. Um, So and, and a lot of people did plant from seeds back in the day, because even if you planted a tree from seed and waited, you know, how, how, however many, like 10 years for it to really start bearing fruit. Um, if the fruit turned out to not be particularly delicious, which was likely, it's more likely that the fruit won't be delicious. You could still press that juice and make cider. And cider was the major beverage of early America. Um, it was, you know, it was, we would, if it was good, you'd drink it fresh. If it wasn't good to drink fresh, you'd let it ferment, which happened very quickly. And then you would have hard cider, which you could enjoy daily, um, as people did, because it was also safer than some water in places. Um, and then if you could also distill it in a very rough way by freezing uh, the hard cider and uh, the, the, the water would kind of separate out and you could remove the, the icy water and you'd have this very concentrated alcoholic beverage which you could use almost like an apple brandy. So cider was so essential, you could use it for vinegar, you know, you could make cider vinegar to preserve your food. So it was the giving tree in early American life and we needed it. And so planting from seed was a very efficient way to an inexpensive way to, it wasn't particularly efficient because it took a long time, but it was very inexpensive. Um, you could plant a lot of apple seeds, see what you got. And you knew you'd at least have all these other essential uh, ingredients. No, I think that's a great point. I'm just reflecting at sort of where I live in North London. My house was built in 1905, but and it's actually, I mean, it doesn't look what people would think of as a development, but that's how most of Greater London was actually built like spec houses in developments just in the Victorian era. And they planted the whole street with apple trees. So almost everyone who hasn't uprooted one has an, at least one oh. apple tree in their backyard. And so it's pretty old. It produces lots of fruit. It's kind of on its own inedible, but it makes really good applesauce if you do that. Oh, that's so great. I love that. I have a, my neighbor has a, a tree that looks about at least 80 years old. It probably was planted. This neighborhood's about a hundred years old. And Unfortunately, it hasn't been pruned well, and I don't have it's. I don't own it, and I can't control it. <laughs> so it could be producing better, but it does. It produces a Macintosh kind of style apple. It's very early, um, and it's not really great for baking, but makes a nice applesauce. And I, they do. They they kindly allow me to pick and pick up the drops as well. And so I'll I'll play with it, but I can't do a lot with that tree, unfortunately. And my, I don't have enough sunlight to really have an orchard here. Uh, well, let's talk about cooking and eating with apples. And I wanted to, before we run out of time, kind of find out some of your favorite suggestions, maybe either that you do or that you give other people who are kind of like, oh, I make apple pie frequently or I already started making in the beginning. So for the holidays, I'd like to do something different for Thanksgiving or at Christmas time or whatever holiday mm-hmm. you celebrate a lo- uh, at the end of December. What yeah. are your thoughts? So in terms of cooking with apples, the, the quick advice is, um, you know, there are a lot of apples out there, um, even in your typical supermarket now, and they don't come with instructions. And so it can be hard to know, you know, it's, if I make an apple pie with Macintosh, it might be delicious, but it will be very mushy and soft. And if I make a pie with Fuji, 
it'll be sweet, but it'll probably be lacking a little bit of the acidity. So when I started writing the book, I I thought the one way to be useful would be to uh, organize apples into four categories because the, the variables that are most important for your cooking are the relative firmness of the apple, like how well does it hold up to heat, and then the relative sweetness versus tartness of the apple. Um, so for very rich things, I like a little bit more acidity. Um, and for very delicate things, like I'd want a sweeter apple. So the apples are basically organized into four categories, and there's 70 varieties here. Um, firm tart, firm sweet, tender tart, and tender sweet. And there's a handy chart in the book that breaks everything down so that when you're cooking a recipe, it will instruct you to use apples from the category rather than a specific variety. So, you know, mm, two tender mm. sweet apples. Um, and I think that that's the most useful way because people do have access to a pretty, pretty wide variety of apples. Mm. Um, but in general, I also want to say, and I think a lot of people, I was, I was um, listening to your interview with Erin McDowell, who is amazing. And mm. um, I love that, you know, when she says at the end of the day, like a cake is a pie, like a slice of pie is a great thing unless it tastes horrible. And I feel the same way. I mean, whatever apple variety you use, I'd rather have a pretty good apple pie than no apple pie. So mm. don't let this make you anxious. Um, so yeah, so think about how well the apple holds up to heat. So if you're making a pie, that's got to bake for about 50 minutes. Um, and so you want a firm apple. And if you're making pancakes, it doesn't matter because it's just five minutes in the pan. Mm. Um, and so that, those are sort of the general rules about cooking with apples. Um, and in terms of the holidays, um, if you want an apple dessert, and I, it's funny, I know Aaron also talked about this, but I love a nice galette. And there is a, a really yummy recipe for um, a apple, pear, and cranberry uh, open-faced tart or call it a galette. Um, and another recipe that I love, which is not on the sweet side, and I, I, you'll probably relate to this living in England, is a, it's a pork and apple pie. And I don't know if you've seen um, pub pies where there's maybe pork on one side and apple, like half the pie is a savory pork pie and half the pie is a sweet apple pie. But no, um, I haven't. Mm. I, I was inspired by that. There, there's a traditional dish that bed Bedfordshire Clanger, which was a handheld pie with meat on one end and jam on the other. And it was um, kind of, I think, a working man's lunch. But uh, I decided to layer uh, ground pork with spices on in the bottom and, and a little bit of breadcrumbs and then apple slices on top and wrap it all up in a cheddar sage pastry crust. And it's such mm. a delicious, sweet, savory, amazing, yummy meal. Um, and then for one other in Yankee magazine this month, and we have this on our website, I did a pie. Uh, it's a, pump, a variation on pumpkin pie that incorporates a very New England iconic ingredient, which is called marshmallow fluff. It's a, um, <laughs> if you grew up in New England, you know this. It's a, it's sort of a marshmallow um, uh, spread and it's very fluffy and very light, very sweet. Um, and what we would eat growing up were peanut butter and fluff sandwiches. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's I know. delicious. <laughs> now, does does your recipe call for manufactured fluff, or do you, can you actually make fluff? Because yes. you it, can make fluff. I was yeah. trying to be realistic about what people were, yeah. were going to be willing to do, and making pie to me is is enough of a project for most folks. Um, so it's the base. It's a it's a uh, base. It's a pie where you. Um, you blind bake the crust. So you start out with a baked crust and then you 
have a layer of um, of fluff that's uh, mixed with uh, cream cheese. So it's almost like a, a a marshmallow cheesecake kind of layer, and mm-hmm. but not not firm. It's it's creamy and fluffy. And then you you make a cusp, you make a stovetop pumpkin filling, which is thickened with um, uh, using um, uh, <laughs> gelatin. Sorry, I just had my brain uh, stop for a moment. Using it's a it's a pumpkin filling thickened with gelatin and has spices and so and it's that goes two on layers. Top, that goes on and, top of the marshmallow fluff. Yes. So you oh. you see pumpkin pie. You know, it looks like a pumpkin pie, but then you slice it and you have this fun fluffy uh layer underneath it and um so that is one of the ways at yankee that we try to have fun with our traditions and with the icon ingre- iconic ingredients um and but give people something new no that does sound fun i feel like it doesn't bother me but i feel like people are always maybe because by a certain age you've been through so many thanksgiving dinners and people like to have and i think kids like to have their favorites and yes. and sort of don't like mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or whoever or aunt or uncle who does a thanksgiving dinner to like veer because everyone looks forward to that yes. but particularly i think the cook is always like i don't want to do the same thing <laughs> right. again and again and so people are always looking i think you know i'm kind of like a traditionalist like i think a good pumpkin pie is a good pumpkin pie only eat it once a year <laughs> so it's fine right. but i but i think you are speaking to those who are looking for a twist i like this it's almost like pumpkin prize pumpkin pie fluff surprise yes it is um and it's almost like the whipped cream is kind of you know there's that creaminess to it so it's almost like the whipped cream is baked in um and you know i always figure when i do a thanksgiving menu as i've been doing now every year for a while um i figure people are probably going to try one of these recipes you know i think Maybe it's a side dish that they try or something, but I, I know nobody's going to make it. Very few people would make an entirely new Thanksgiving menu um, because we do all have our family favorites. But hey, definitely be the, br- the brave, the brave person for sure. <laughs> or well, a thank- first timer, maybe. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Well, thank you yeah. for all those great ideas. So we will be right back and Amy will share her Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show and share your ideas for future guests. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Amy, what's your Julia moment? Uh, So in terms of watching Julia, I go back to um, the Nancy Silverton moment where she made her creme fraiche brioche dessert and Julia was moved to tears. Um, I think it, it was such a beautiful moment. Um, it was such a sincere and real thing. And Julia was always so real with us, but for her to show that l- kind of emotion was new and I was moved to tears watching it. Um, mm, mm. Um, and it was, I think it was so delicious. And I think may, maybe it sparked a memory for Julie. I always wonder what was going on in her mm, head that yeah, day. Yeah, I know, must have, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and that uh, food can be so moving and so it and so connected to memory. Um, and then I have a personal Julia moment. I was I was working as an editorial assistant at Boston Magazine and I was asked to call a number that we had on file for her and us very much assuming I would get an assistant. And we we just wanted to send her an invitation for an event and I needed an address. So I called the number and ring, ring, and then hello. <laughs> and I almost fell over in my chair. I mean, having grown up watching her, I could not believe I was on the phone with her. Unfortunately, I never met her in person, but I absolutely treasure that I spoke to her on the phone. It was such a thrill. Oh, that's so nice. Yes, I can remember the first time I um, went... Uh... So I can't remember if I've shared that. So Julia was a, a, a mentor of my mother-in-law's and, and a close friend. And my wife, my mother-in-law met Julia when, in Boston, in Cambridge, when she was pregnant with my wife. And so my wife has known Julia her whole Oh. knew Julia her whole life and she was kind of like a surrogate godmother and I remember that when we moved to California and Anne was like oh I want you to you know check in like she really needed it but check in with Julia and Julia called and left an answering machine message and I came home first and put the answering machine in the days when people really listened to answering machines I put the answering machine on and it was like hello it's Julia jo I was like what? <laughs> oh wow I know I'm really bummed because it would have been on a little cassette tape too in those days yeah pre-digital pre i was like i should have saved that it would be so fun yeah. to listen to. especially uh, it was like julia was like introducing herself like we wouldn't have recognized her voice <laughs> <laughs> but i think she uh, always did that i think she always said hello it's julia john yes <laughs> i you know so many i mean i was watching her you know at my grandmother's house um it was that shared experience of you know learning together in front of the TV from the most engaging person and having, you know, this show on GBH, just the fact that we are kind of in the same organization that Julia transformed with her yeah. show is the greatest honor. It's one of the biggest thrills. And whenever I have a chance to talk or think about her, I read all her biographies, you know, to just be in any way connected to her legacy. There's something so meaningful because she was, a, you know, beautiful part of my own growing up and um, certainly an inspiration in what I ended up doing as a career. So, you know, I love that her legacy lives on here and, you know, at GBH and in other places. Oh, thank you. I was going to say, do you think that New Englanders and particularly, obviously, Bostonians have like a special connection to, to Julia? A hundred percent. I think we actually kind of willfully ignore her California roots <laughs> and her California like conclusion. It's sort of like, well, she needed to get she needed better weather. Like many of us, you know, she needed to get away from the winter. <laughs> well, I <laughs> but... have to say also as a native Californian, I think you should because California didn't step up and do anything about it. They just let it go. <laughs> Right. Well, I think, yeah, we, I mean, I think we can be a little bit possessive, but yeah, I mean, we feel and certainly in Boston, in the restaurant community, she is a huge presence in um, our identity as a food town. Well, thank you for making us think about and taking us down those roads and sharing your incredible Apple knowledge. I hope lots of minds have been blown and uh, in a good way and rethought. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. This was a real treat. Likewise. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you found it inspiring as well. 
If you want to keep up with Amy or check out Yankee Magazine, particularly that pumpkin fluff uh, pie uh, recipe, and or learn more from the latest at GBH, it's at Amy Traverso and at Yankee Magazine on Twitter and Instagram. It's at WGBH on Instagram and just GBH on Twitter. And do check out this video, Amy Traverso Makes Julia Child's Keys Lorraine from the You and Julia Cooking at Home series. You can find it on GBH's YouTube channel. Just Google the title, Amy Traverso Makes Julia Child's Keys Lorraine. You will love it. A new edition of the Apple Lover's Cookbook, The Classic Guide to Cooking and Eating Apples by Amy Traverso, with photographs by Squire Fox, is out now from W.W. Norton. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. It includes those recipes Amy mentioned and that chart on learning to cook better with apples. Keep up with the foundation and new podcast episodes at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram, at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show, and we appreciate your feedback. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.